Hello, my name is Rosemary Milsom and I'm the director of the Newcastle Writers' Festival. Most of us will experience at least one traumatic event, but why and how do certain people cope more effectively with personal tragedy? In this session recorded at the 2019 festival, Mira Atkinson, Heather Morris and Rick Morton speak to Annabelle Smith about resilience. Good afternoon and welcome to Newcastle Writers' Festival. My name is Annabelle Smith and I am here today with, on my right, Rick Morton, an award-winning journalist and social affairs writer for The Australian. And we're here today to talk about his critically acclaimed memoir, 100 Years of Dirt. Please welcome Rick Morton. Thank you. Thank you for having me. In the middle we have Mira Atkinson. Mira was the recipient of the Varuna Dr. Dark Flagship Fellowship for 2017, awarded for non-fiction of outstanding quality in social, historical or political writing. Her monograph, The Poetics of Transgenerational Trauma, was published by Bloomsbury in 2017. She teaches creative writing at the University of Sydney and she's here today to talk to us about her book, Traumata. Please welcome Mira Atkinson. And on my right is Heather Morris, a native of New Zealand, now resident in Australia. In 2003, Heather was introduced to an elderly gentleman who said he might just have a story worth telling. The day she met Lale Sokolov changed both their lives as their friendship grew and he embarked on a journey of self-scrutiny and trusting the innermost details of his life during the Holocaust to her. Heather originally wrote Lale's story as a screenplay before reshaping it into her debut novel, The Tattooist of Auschwitz. Please welcome Heather Morris. <coughs> before we go any further, I would like to acknowledge that we have the privilege of meeting today on the traditional lands of the Awabakal and Warumi peoples, and I'd like to pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. If you would like to use Wi-Fi for social media, the network here is Writers, and the password for the is Festival 2019. The hashtag is NWF19. We love you to live tweet and all of that stuff, but please make sure your phones are on silent. There's going to be a few minutes for questions at the end, and when I say questions, I mean questions, not comments. Um, if you don't get a chance to ask your question, then you will get a chance to talk to the authors when they're signing books in the foyer afterwards. Okay, so without further ado, um, I have asked our um, <coughs> authors here today to share with us a taste of their writing. So we're going to begin with some readings. Rick, would you like to um, start us off? Yeah, yeah, why not? Um, I literally just chose it before, <laughs> about two seconds ago. Um, so just for context, this is part of the chapter. It's the chapter I consider to be kind of the centerpiece of the book. It's about me and my brother, um, Toby, after a, a life of trauma. Um, he's become <coughs> a drug addict. Um, my mum's a single mum uh, with her kids slow in the nest, but she's still in poverty. And I'm kind of grappling with how I became relatively successful at life compared to what he had done and, and where that came from. This is from the middle of that chapter. The question of what separates my brother and I has haunted me for the better part of a decade. The absolutists will argue on the one hand that he is entirely a prisoner of his circumstances, or on the other, that he is wholeheartedly to blame based on the choices he made along the way. 
neither of these positions takes in the shadow land between what is done to us as human beings and what we do after the fact. Here's an inconvenient truth. Though I may be held up as a worthy product of my upbringing, I did not get here by careful planning. If I made the correct, <coughs> pardon me, if I made the correct choices, I don't remember making them. Each of us has a threshold for what we can endure in a life. Perhaps if one more thing had stood in my way, I might have imploded. I haven't, I haven't ended up here writing this because I mapped out the right pathway. Rather, I suffered a singular compulsion to make it out by any means possible. Maybe Toby suffered another motivating force, one whose chief aim was to hide the pain. Maybe that was what survival looked like. The pre-Columbian Aztecs had a saying for someone who had led a moral life but still fell into trouble. It is slippery, it is slick on the earth. Western civilizations like to think they stumbled onto philosophy first, but the Aztecs had a broader, deeper vision of the Aristotelian mission to lead a good life. There is no guarantee of happiness, even for those who put in the effort. The earth is slippery. It will move underneath you, they said, and swallow you up all the same. In a written conversation from the Mesoamerican time, a mother says to her child, the earth is not a good place. It is not a place of joy, a place of contentment. It is rather said that it is a place of joy fatigue, of joy pain. To the people of that time, there was no distinction between those who made the right choices and those who made the wrong ones. It's a rudimentary analysis, and it is fair to say Toby, my brother, has had years now to make a decision about whether to keep hurting himself and his family, or at least attempt to get help. But, like the Aztecs would say, the earth slipped beneath him well before now, and he is, to some extent, at the mercy of two generations of family trauma reaching across time to him. Sometimes, the millions of tiny little moments of suffering take you down, like swarming ants on the carapace of a beetle. Nature. And you touched on some really key things that we're going to talk about here today, that kind of threshold and, and whether we retreat into avoidance in the face of trauma or whether something else kind of propels us forward. Mm. So thank you, Rick. Mira, would you like to read to us? Sure. <coughs> um, no context, because <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, a book that goes everywhere, but I did put some thought into what might speak to the theme. My body is at the ready for flight. I can't switch my nervous system off. It scans and calculates tirelessly, antennae out for threats. I avoid going out on Friday and Saturday nights because the energy triggers me. I experience the revved up speeding down suburban streets, the big bodies spilling out of doorways, the loud lubrications, as threatening and unsettling. What others consider fun, I might well find menacing. I feel the microaggressions as macro, the body remembers. In a report titled The Neuroscience of Traumatic Memory, Bessel van der Kolk and Ruth Buczynski describe how the thalamus malfunctions in the overwhelmed brain, which results in traumatised people often remembering images, sights, sounds and physical sensations without context, without a coherent story of the traumatic event. So it is that certain sensations or sensory stimuli can trigger a traumatic reaction. 
Apparently the brain forms territories marked dangerous and safe. The brain of an abused child can become wired to, wired to believe I'm a person to whom terrible things happen and I'd better be on the alert for who's going to hurt me now. This can't be fixed by talking about the event in the past, which is not in the past at all, but in the present, in the very sensations of the now. The past, they say, is only relevant insofar as it stirs up current sensations, feelings, emotions and thoughts. The story about the past is just a story that people tell to explain how bad the trauma was or why they have certain behaviours." All the talking, all the therapy, all the writing, all the putting the pieces of the puzzle together don't quell that indefatigable fear that I'm a person to whom terrible things happen but they have helped lessen the strangled hold of that fear. They've given me resources to draw on in dealing with it and have enabled me to meet myself with compassion more often in those moments in which I disappoint and frustrate myself. I don't see myself as cured. It's not black and white. I don't graduate from grief. It comes in waves and layers and varying intensities. It laces my days never too far away keeping my heart soft and pulsing. Trauma gets lodged in the tissues, the breath stops, catches, flows shallow, mimicking trauma's deathliness. I remind myself to breathe, guide the breath down into the belly, remind my breath that it lives, that I live, that I deserve to live, to claim the life in my body. I remember the body in yoga, remember the breath, stretch through pain to release, calming the lizard brain. These zones of reconnection and sacrosanct relief recharge me, help soothe the fractious fight, fight or flight switch that is always tripping on, the shimmering, not quite here thoughts of danger that can escalate in a heartbeat to sounding alarm, the stabs of fear. Sometimes in meditation, there is a moment that opens up into an ebbing oneness that like the sea can't be broken. Thank you. Yeah. <coughs> Great. Aren't they fantastic? Um, I'm going to give you just a little intro into where, where I'm coming from with mine. Lali Sokolov is in Birkenau. He's caught typhoid. He's been nursed back to health. He's been taken outside and he has been speaking to the man who identifies himself as Pepan the Tatavera, and he offers him a job. Then take my job offer. You want me to tattoo other men? Someone has to do it. I don't think I could do that. Scar somebody, hurt someone. It does hurt, you know. Pepan pulls his back his sleeve to reveal his own number. It hurts like hell. If you don't take the job, somebody with less soul than you will and hurt these people more. Working for the capo is not the same as defiling hundreds of innocent people. A long silence follows. Lully again enters his dark place. Do those making decisions have a family, a wife, children, parents? They can't possibly. You can tell yourself that, but you are still a Nazi puppet. Whether it is with me or the capo or building blocks, you are still doing their dirty work. You have a way of putting things. So? then yes, if you can arrange it, I will work for you. Not for me, with me. But you must work quickly and efficiently and not make any trouble with the SS. 
Okay. Pepin stands, goes to walk away. Lully grabs at his shirt sleeve. Pepin, why have you chosen me? I saw a half-starved young man risk his life to save you. I figure you must be someone worth saving. I'll come for you in the morning, get some rest now. That night, as his blockmates return, Lully notices that Aaron is missing. He asks the two other men sharing his bed, what has happened to him? How long has he been gone? About a week, comes the reply. Lully's stomach drops. The kapo couldn't find you, the man says. Aaron could have told him you were ill, but he feared the kapo would add you to the death cart again, if you knew. So he said you were already gone. And the kapo discovered the truth? No, yawns the man, exhausted from work. But the kapo, who was so pissed off, he took Aaron anyway. Lully struggles to contain his tears. The second bunkmate rolls onto his bed. You put big ideas into his head. He saved, he wanted to save the one. To save one is to save the world. Lully completes the phrase. The men sink into silence for a while. Lully looks at the ceiling, blinks away tears. Aaron is not the first person to die here and he will not be the last. Thank you, he says. We try to continue what Aaron started, to see if we could save the one. We took turns, a young boy says from below, smuggling water and sharing our bread with you, forcing it down your throat. Another picks up the story. He rises from the bunk below, haggard, with cloudy blue eyes, his voice flat, but still full of the need to tell his part of the story. We changed your soil clothes. We swapped them with someone who had died overnight. Lali is now unable to stop the tears that roll down his emaciated cheeks. I can't. He can't do anything but be appreciative. He knows he has a debt he cannot repay. Not now, not here, realistically, not ever. He falls asleep to the soulful sound of Hebrew chants from those who still cling to their faith. Thank you. <coughs> so, Heather, your book is about trauma on, on an enormous scale of a whole group of people. Whereas Rick and Mira, your stories are of, of a more private kind of trauma. Uh, they're about family violence. Can you talk a little bit about the kind of specific nature of, of that, of, of experiencing that? Well, mine is a collective trauma. It is trauma of an excess of a million people, many of whom, of course, didn't survive. But through that trauma, these strangers, these people from many different countries who were brought together for one reason only, their religion, they became a family and so they shared their pain, their trauma, their guilt, even in that camp while they were there. And that was the phrase that Lali would say to me, we were a family. Mm. And many, many survivors, and I'm so privileged to meet many Holocaust survivors, both in Australia and other countries, and they talk about that too, and they talk about the shared humanity they had between themselves. They weren't going to get it from anywhere else. Yes, and that's what's so different, isn't it, than, than what you guys experience, which is where it's behind closed doors and there isn't anyone who's mm. experiencing it simultaneously, except siblings, which you both talk about. Yes, but uh, I guess that's the, that's the thing for me is I, at the time, obviously as a child and as a young adult, it did feel like it was, you know, very personal. But 
my reason for writing the book was actually to um, explore the ways in which I think trauma really isn't personal, the ways in which I think it's really um, socially and politically structured. Mm. And so, yeah, it is, you know, th there's a kind of very foundational kind of memoir aspect in my book, but as I say in it, it's I'm, u I'm telling my story really as a portal to explore um, what I do think of as collective traumatic operations and, you know, gender, race, um, you know, I think <coughs> there are a few people that, if any, escape being somehow touched and affected um, by that structural trauma. We're born into it and, mm -hmm. and that is what I guess I wanted to explore is that, you know, micro-macro relationship and the way that, you know, people with traumatised histories, people with addiction, um, with, with other sort of symptomology that's stigmatised, um, tend to be the, you know, they're the kind of black sheep of society. They're the ones who wear it, the scapegoats. But um, most of most of us—that's what I've learned as an adult, anyway—that most people, uh, you know, it was it was not quite as singular and unique as mm. it might have seemed at times. And and we certainly know that family violence is not mm. is yeah, not uncommon. Mm. Um, neither is sexual assault and yeah. all the other things that I I talk about. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and, and I guess that's the thing that I was trying to get at uh, as well, not just is it, it's personal, obviously, for me, but also just in my own family, the way we've all experienced different traumas, or the same trauma even, mm. my brother my brother was burnt really badly and almost died on a, the cattle station when I was six, and I watched it happen, and my father was there and my mother was there with my three-week-old baby, <coughs> and we didn't know if he was going to live or not. I mean, I guess that's the central trauma in my story, apart from the family violence and the cruel... Um, kind of cruel guardianship of my grandfather on this remote outback cattle station. And then there's also kind of the guilt um, of the trauma, the, f the fact that I even think I can dare to write about that trauma when the, the very fact of my family, they exist on that side because we took the land from Aboriginal people, mm. um, which was always such a kind of a fraught thing, even in my own family, and I explained that in the book with my grandfather, the relationship between Indigenous people in, in that part of the world and my family has been very, um, very kind of difficult. Um, yeah, and there's them. a story that um, specifically that your grandfather raped an Aboriginal woman. And, yep. mm. and that, mm. was, that was the bargain that my grandmother used to get my father and his six siblings into boarding school. Mm. Um, she gave him an alibi. And it was like, it, it, I find it really hard to explain because um, my grandfather was an evil man. Uh, he didn't send his kids to school. They were basically his slaves on the cattle station to do the work, and they were expected to fight amongst themselves to prove themselves worthy of inheriting this great landmass that, at the time, equaled the size of Belgium, um, of seven different stations. And my grandmother was a tough, um, loving but pragmatic woman, and she saw this as a way to get her kids into boarding school at the expense of an Indigenous woman mm. whose story she knew would never be believed mm. um, by the one white copper out there. And I think that raises a really interesting question is the question of accountability. So when someone is a victim of trauma, we often look for someone to hold accountable for that trauma. But when the trauma is something that so many people are enmeshed in, it's, it's harder to hold someone accountable because they are the perpetrators are also often the victims themselves. So 
your grandmother oppressed an Aboriginal woman, but at the same time she was the victim of trauma. She was married to a man who physically yep. and emotionally abused her on an ongoing basis for many years. And there was no escape for her either. No. Um, I guess, I guess I mean, there are hierarchies sometimes. Mm. I mean, she was above the Indigenous women, but mm. women out there were below men mm. in general. Mm. And uh, it's interesting to think about those things, the kind of intersection of those axes of oppression. You know, Heather, you said race, obviously, is the really the big part of um, the Holocaust and religion. And, you know, race comes into the, the, the Aboriginal trauma that we have in our land. And then, of course, women, you know, um, gender is part of it too. So there are all these intersecting things that you draw on a lot in your book, Mira. Mm. Um, and you talk about accountability too, in terms of, you know, in terms of your your mother, mm. um, that you, she, she was a victim, but you were more of a victim, and it was her duty to to protect you in certain ways. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that I, I don't know that I see myself as more of a victim. It's just that I was the child, <laughs> and she was the mother, mm. and. But that's not how our relationship worked, mm. fundamentally. And, you know, later, many years later, when I was uh, an in my mid-twenties and I was starting to reckon with this history, and uh, my mother and I met one day and we were talking about it, and she said, you know, yeah, you're right, you, sh you know, I should have protected you. Um, she was enormously pained, enormously pained, racked with, gui racked with guilt. Mm. Um, about her failure to parent in the way that I needed. Mm. Um, but I, you know, I, I really understand now how very wounded she was. And, um, you know, there, I think now I see that um, in her way she was very resilient to, you know, to um, do as well as she did, mm -hmm. even, yeah. yeah. Resilience is a is a word that really comes to mind when you think about Lali's story. His, uh, I mean, he had some luck too, but he was also an incredibly plucky fellow, wasn't he? He he took enormous risks at times, and he had an incredible determination to survive that experience. Oh, absolutely! But you said the word. You said the correct word. Every single Holocaust survivor I've met, and as I say, it's in the hundreds now, they only use one word to describe their surviving. I was lucky. Mm. Lali always said it in threes. I was lucky, lucky, lucky all the time. But luck was what played that part in whether they lived or died. The luck to stand in front of that person selecting who lived or died and get the flick of the wrist to the left or to the right. Mm and you had no say, there was nothing you could do at that point in your life to determine the outcome. Mm. And so, yes, it was luck, but then, of course, you had to continue to survive, and that's where the, the resilience of somebody like Lully and Gita and Silk and the other people in my stories, they had that also. Now, I don't touch upon in the book because there's so... I mean, you've got to know you've got about 20% in that book of what I know of Lully's story. Uh, the, th the aspects of it where resilience didn't play a part, where people had the choice sometimes whether they lived or died, and they made that choice by doing something to either 
get themselves shot by the, the SS. Or you've got to remember, <coughs> they were surrounded by an electrified fence, and that was another way out. Let me tell you a little story that is not in my book, because I knew about it, because Luddy told me many, many times what he did. But it's only since the book has come out, people have approached me in several countries now and told me about why they are here on this earth. I'll just pick one, this one woman in, in England, signing her book, and she just said to me quietly, I'm only here because of Lali the Tetevera. Mm. I said, hey, get behind me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> when, when we're finished writing, uh, signing. Yeah. And so I bailed her up, she waited. And this woman, she was in her, in her 50s, and she told me how her and her brother, every time in their lives growing up, things got tough, their dad said to them, you are here because of the Tetevera in, in Birkenau, and a brave man whose name I do not know. And they knew that their dad had been a 17-year-old boy in Birkenau, and he was in one of the blocks that the next day was scheduled to all go to the gas chamber. That's what they did. Once you've, you've, you've been there for six months, you're weak, you're no longer productive, there's still tens of thousands of people coming in, but we need to house them somewhere. So block 29, you're all going to the gas chamber tomorrow. And people were told that it was going to be their last day on earth. Well, her dad was in a block that was going to the gas chamber the next day. Lali came up to him, pulled him aside, and had with him a man who her dad said he described as being older. We figure by older, he probably was 30. <laughs> and Lali pulled him aside and introduced him to this man, but he never got his name. This man had come to Lali and told me, Lali's told me this story too, had come to Lali and said to Lali, he was not going to survive. He was so unwell, he was so weak, he knew that he could not survive continuing the way he was. And he asked Lully, make my death count. What can you do hmm. to make my death count? So Lully took him, grabbed the 17-year-old boy who looked relatively okay, and he said to come with me, I'm changing your number. And he changed the number on these two men, and he took that 17-year-old back to block 15, and that man went into Block 29 and died the next day. And that happened time and time again. Now, did that guy not have resilience to keep living? No, he'd, he'd, he'd got to the point where he couldn't, but he made his death count. Mm. That man went on and... I'm so pleased you've made that distinction, Heather. I've been thinking upon this. And, you know, I think we've got to be clear that, you know, resilience isn't the same as survival and survival yeah. is a luck game to a large degree, even outside of that extreme mm. genocidal context. It's, you know, I consider, you know, my, my life as a teenager and young adult was so high risk. I still sometimes can't <laughs> believe that I'm here. Um, and so many people aren't. Mm. Um, and and high risk in many ways, and, and that's, that's luck, you know. I couldn't have orchestrated uh, any of that, and in some ways, you know, at times I lived in a very, you know, very suicidal way, like, come on, you know, come on, let's high go there, you know. And I don't know why I kept waking up and other people didn't. Um, so I think that's a really important distinction. And I think I'm very wary of being self-congratulatory about resilience. I think that's a real danger. You know, young, uh, young Aboriginal people are not dying by suicide in record numbers because they're not resilient. Um, that's happening because they've been born into unbearable weight of transgenerational trauma um, as a result of 
we, we all know the reasons, but, but you know, centuries now of colonisation, genocidal policies and extreme racism, and that's not, you know, so we have to be really careful about sitting here on a stage going, oh, yes, I'm so asleep. <laughs> <laughs> but, mm. you know, having survived, there's an opportunity um, to learn how to be resilient, and I don't... I think that that's the case for me. I learned how to be resilient, and I was schooled in how to be resilient because, left to my own devices, I was, um, you know, somebody who just medicated self-destructively, mm. as so many people with traumatized. Um, you so know, it's just like do. your brother, Rick, right? Yeah. Just like your brother. And me in my early twenties. I mean, I could have become my brother very easily. Mm. I don't know why I didn't. I mm. so relate to that in the opposite. My brother's yeah. nine years older than me, and he didn't manifest the sort of. <laughs> florid addiction <laughs> stuff that I did and so I was you know I was, I was like why is he looking yeah, so okay and oh. I'm not but um, yeah I think that's I think it's important to you know to acknowledge for me resilience is you know I might have had some strength and some tenacity along the way but um, I think of community it's not just an individualist mm. thing I think of community I think of the women who um, who sat there with me in, in the residential program for, for women with addictions that I went to at, at 24. And, you know, sort of helped me deconstruct who I thought I was and find, you know, mm. something of who was really there. Can we talk about writing in relation to that process, you know, finding who you are? Rick, when you set out to write this book, did you know where you were going with it? Did you know what you were going to be digging through? No. And uh, <laughs> so originally I wanted to write this book, I think because my coping mechanism has always been humour, I wanted to write this book as a collection of funny essays. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> wow, um, you went a little off track, I'd have to yeah, say. <laughs> yeah, I woke up in the wrong room. <laughs> um, I, look, so there's a story in this book about um, from the age... I, I didn't speak properly until the age of three. I just spoke some garbled language that only my brother could understand. And my mother has always claimed um, from that day on, basically, um, that I was an alien. I was not hers. Um, I was brought down to earth um, by aliens to report back on humanity and provide my information back to some civilization in space. Um, and I didn't question it. It made perfect sense to me. Because <laughs> you look at my family, I'm, I'm not like any of them. Um, I, am, uh, I, I am the urban gay. I am the one that kind of doesn't kill wild pigs on weekends like my sister. Um, <laughs> I'm not particularly blokey. Um, I do love the North Queensland Cowboys. So when I wanted to write this book, I kept coming back to that alien MacGuffin, that mum and I, she still she hasn't broken the fourth wall today. Like, I'll call her up and she'll be like, how's my alien son going? Um, and I think I did it because I knew I had to tell the story. Um, but I, didn't, I hadn't figured the story out. Um, mm. I mean, we're a very story-based family. Like, my mum was not particularly well educated. She didn't finish year 10. She left to go working straight away. She was a stay-at-home mum on a cattle station in the middle of nowhere um, for 10 years, for 11 years. And, but the one thing she was really good at was telling stories. And it was the one thing she had, like her life stopped when my brother got burned and my father had an affair and left with the governess um, and then kicked us out and froze the bank accounts. Her life stopped. Mm. And there was nothing beyond that except sheer subsistence and trying every day to do the sums to feed us to get by and change my brother's pressure bandages on his burns, um, take him to hospital. And those stories embedded in my mind, and it took me literally all of my 20s to figure out what they meant. Um, and uh, all of my 20s and about four mental breakdowns, um, including three particularly very serious ones, um, where if I'd written it any earlier, I would have been filled with hate and spite and 
and all of the other feelings. And I think now I finally understand the broader picture and the broader picture is um, th that kind of this kind of bitterness and this hatred among families, among people, it doesn't get you anywhere. Mm. I mean, it is not helpful. And I think there is a, a, a bigger call to, to try and understand the world without judging it. Mm. And that's kind of been my, what I've been trying to do in here. Um, I like to say there is no villain in my book, not even my father. Um, maybe my grandfather comes close, but I mean, even he was product of his own, his own circumstances. And, and, and that's kind of where I'm at. So the writing process helped you to reach that point, do you think? I think, yes. Um, I, what I did was, over a number of years, try to write my funny essay book <laughs> um, and realised it wasn't particularly funny, um, <coughs> even though I am especially funny. Um, <laughs> and so I, I would write vignettes, essentially. Like little, I knew there were, uh, my, the brother chapter in this book has been with me for the last six years um, on my computer and the other bits and pieces that I knew that were important and I had tried to write and rewrite and they just never felt correct. And to be perfectly honest, it was, you know, when NUP came to me, it was because I'd written a column <coughs> in the Weekend Australian because Mark Latham called me an elitist um, <laughs> and I got really mad about it. Um, and which is not like, you know, if you want to, you know, make a comeback to the former opposition leader on a parliamentary pension, about not being elitist, you probably shouldn't do it in your column in the national broadsheet. Um, I think you absolutely should. <laughs> it's just like, what I'm going to take to my, my giant media platform. Yeah. Um, but that's what they saw that, and, and they were the ones that kind of knew that this book was bigger. And it was at that point that I realised that the seven years that I've spent covering social policy at The Australian, um, for the reason of my background, I realised that there were so many other people like us out there, um, that there was a bigger story to tell. It wasn't just my own, and it wasn't just my family's. And, and, and I think that was the, what the writing needed to be. And mm. I think, I hope that's what it is. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. no, absolutely. Yeah. And, and Mira, you, you your, the writing process for you has been a way of coming to terms with both your own experience and connecting with those broader issues, no? <laughs> no, <laughs> so what, I mean, you did have that story about age 10, you started writing a novel and that, that, yes. that was a way of kind of trauma yes, processing. I, I, that's the thing for me, it's, um, you know, this book wasn't cathartic because I, I didn't need it to be and I, I already had a pretty keen sense of, of what I, had to say, or you know, that that was already very real to me. I guess the way I think of writing and resilience is that writing has been part of, you know, part of what has made me want to stay here on the planet. You know, that's part of it, and that's been always a big part of my drive, my passion. And so, um, you know, f it's a it's a profound way of connecting and it's available anytime. Anytime I am physically able in a position to write, um, I can connect with myself and make some kind of sense of my experience and my encounters in this world in a way that somehow feeds me. And, and that's the, you know, like when we were talking about the difference between survival and resilience, I think of resilience as, you know, not just surviving, but of being, um, living a rich and spirited life in the face of hardship or trauma. And 
so for me, writing is absolutely central to that. Mm. It's, it's, um, but that's a big lifelong mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of, course, of thing. Yeah. And um, when it came to this book, it wasn't so much, you know, that I'm, it is a sense-making project. One of the reviews called it a sense-making project, and I agree with that, it is. But, and, and yes, that connecting the dots with, the, with my story and the bigger yes, picture. Yes, I guess sense-making in the yes, making those connections. That was important. Mm. Um, that was the big driver for the book, really. But, um, but you also talk about speaking for others who may not be able yes, to speak Yes, I themselves. do feel that sense mm. of, you know, I, I'm very aware, you know, there's still so much stigma around addiction, for example, around illicit drug addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, I feel a sense of responsibility to, um, I guess, to, to speak to that and to um, challenge that. And also to, yeah, there are many, many people that don't survive mm-hmm. or that, you know, um, don't find a reason to want to. And um, I think, if there's any way that, that I can um, help speak mm. those experiences to. Um, I suppose, too, there are people who survive but don't have any way of articulating their experience. Well, there's experience. that, too. It's mm. very difficult. And, I s- I, you know, both as a scholar and as a writer, I've grappled for the last eight years with this business of how do you speak trauma? You mm. know, the whole point of trauma is that it is, um, it's, it's very hard to communicate in any kind of conventional, normal way because mm. it's an experience that, you know, a traumatised person is themselves still trying to kind of, in some way... Yeah, um, there's a, an incoherence Yes, to there's it. this kind of... It's a weird sort of absence-presence thing and how do you... Um, you know, as, as Dory Lobb, um, one of the Holocaust um, studies scholars, um, s- puts it that its trauma is a record of a record yet to be made. Mm. And when you speak and write trauma, that's you're sort of trying to write something that is impossible in a way mm. to speak and represent. Let's talk about that, Heather, in relation to Lali, because I- at the back of your book you say he wanted it to be recorded so it would never happen again. So writing his story must have felt like an enormous responsibility as well as a privilege, I imagine, for you. Um, yeah, and how wrong was he, eh? Mm. Mm. First, let me just make the comment about that. Um, Lully said to me so many times that he and Gita made a pact when they got together that the only way they could honour all those people who did not survive was to have the best life they could. Nothing could come of them continuing to spend their life in that dark place they had been in. They had to make a good life. Otherwise, those people died for nothing, he said. So that was how he sort of rationalised getting on with his life. Responsibility. Yeah, you had it to yourself and to the people that you were uh, writing about that were coming in and out of your story. I find myself, I had the responsibility to who? And I looked at it when I was doing this. What decisions did I make? Where did my responsibility lie? And I came back really firmly. It lay with Lully. It lay with Lully in the story that he told me. Many, many people have written and will continue to write the story of the Holocaust. I will write one story of the Holocaust and just be grateful that there are others out there, many more will come. And so then I had to look at that memory in history. Now, where do these two things, where do they merge? 
I'm getting this from an 87, 88-year-old man, and where do they part? And they did. Mm. As I say, many things are not recorded because I could not find that second piece of evidence to confirm things that he had told me. So uh, to me, it then became really, really clear. It was so easy for me in the end. Honour, Lully. He had gone to the depth of despair with me in recounting his story. My job was to honour him and tell his story. And I know make no apologies for anyone who thinks that, and it's been said to me, you did not have enough of the horror in the Holocaust in your story. I'm sorry, screw you, I wasn't writing about the Holocaust. <laughs> you don't mention all these other bastards that were in that time period. I don't, because it's not their story. Mm. Yes, some of them have to come in and out of it. They take one step in and then I kick them out again. <laughs> that doesn't mean to say that I don't know a shitload of stuff about the horrors and the evil that went on there. But no good can come from you trying to read my simple story and hear it. So all I can do is say to you, if you want to know more, there's plenty out there. Go and find it. Mm. Mm. It's great that you brought up the subject of memory because both, both you, Rick, and Mira discuss that incredible, the scientific information and the, sci the science of the interplay between memory and trauma. Mm. Um, Rick, you have this wonderful line, the most pure memory is the one we never come back to. Can mm. you elaborate on that for the yeah, audience? I, uh, so yes, I can, <laughs> and I shall. Um, there was, so we used to think that memories were stored like uh, in a filing cabinet in the brain, and that you could just pluck them out, the sheet of paper, the single <laughs> memory, uh, and it never changed. And there was this researcher, Narim Kader, in I think New York University, who one day decided, he's like, well, what if every time we remember something, we're actually recreating <laughs> it? He said, what, what if I test that? And so he did this elaborate test, I won't bore you with all the details, but it involved shocking rats in a laboratory. And he played a little song before the rats got shocked and they remembered it. And the next time he played the song, they started shivering, their hair would stand on end because they knew they were about to get shocked. Now, if you inject a particular chemical into the rat's brain at the time the tone is played, it's a, um, it stops proteins being formed. And they know that the, some memories are kind of, uh, have something to do with the proteins. If you do that at the time, it stops the rats remembering the shock entirely. And that must mean, in terms of that research, that every time you remember something, your brain recreates the protein because this chemical stopped that from being recreated. And it, it, the rats never again remembered the shock or the trauma of what had happened to them. It's like the eternal sunshine of the spotless mind. That's one piece of research among many, but I guess the point is that um, the more you remember something, the more you degrade it. You're pulling it out from this kind of pure platonic ideal and you're, you're messing it up in the real world. And it, it made, I put it in the book because I wanted to kind of inoculate myself a little bit against charges of my own misremembering of mm. things. And, and I did as much double checking and cross checking as I could w across the entire family, but with mum in particular. But there was stuff that we just don't agree on. My brother and I mm. don't agree on about timing particularly mm. um, and, and things like that. And I guess it's that old saying, you, you don't necessarily remember what was said, but you remember how you felt. Mm. Um, so I thought it was important to put in there. And Mira, you talk a lot about that. I think that, that memories such as they are, are often for the traumatised person much more uh, a kind of collection of 
sensations and impressions rather than a coherent narrative mm. type can be more fractured, can be more unreliable and you know we know that from back in the Nuremberg trials when you know they would have people on the stand saying well how many chimneys were there and they'd be going um two three, three I mean mm. and there, there was you know an expectation that they should know for sure and and in, in the case of trauma you know no you can't say how many chimneys there are in a reliable way but that doesn't mean that what it wasn't. Even. That doesn't mean that that you can't testify to the truth of, of what was happening and mm. what you know some of what you did experience. It's just that the recall is 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 less than reliable. And I mean that's true of memory in general. <laughs> I guess with with in the case of trauma though, it's more mm. extreme. I think it's fascinating though how something that we <coughs> might think of as something that happens in the mind we tend to think of trauma as a kind of psychological experience but it's very much physiological mm. as well and um mira you say the body remembers and rick you quoted this amazing um you said it imprints itself on three thousand sites in your dna and mm. on every chromosome yeah. and it grows with you i, I was really intrigued by that. There's, I mean, I don't want to get too <coughs> excited because it's early days, but mm. there is this emerging field of epigenetics. Mm. Um, and there are some really convincing studies around the world, particularly of one of the Overcalix people in, in Scandinavia, where they go back 700 years. And the, the Overcalix people were really um, great note takers, thank God. Um, so they used to basically <coughs> take note of how many grains there were, how much food there was, whether they were in famine, and how many boys and um, girls were born and how healthy they were in any given year. And basically, that what that allowed them to do was <coughs> look at um, whether a grandfather born in famine um, or in plenty at a time of plenty, what effect that would have on his grandson. And I can't remember the exact details. It's in my book because I, it's so counterintuitive. Because I think if you're um, a grandmother in the womb, if there was a famine when you were in the womb, um, then that was what had the most impact on your granddaughter. Mm -hmm. But for grandfathers and grand children it was different grandsons it was different the point being we it's it's not just our genes that we carry with us it can be the experiences mm. of the world around us because this stuff happened outside of the genes mm. this experience that they're taking with them and there's there's more than one study that kind of points in that direction and i guess i i like those studies because that's how i feel mm. <laughs> i feel like i am the third point um in a in a really um horrible train line of trauma from my great-grandfather um, to my grandfather, my dad and me. <coughs> and I kind of, I feel like I've taken it with me. Mm. And I don't know, I, 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 I just wanted to make a point briefly about the way that it, that expresses with memory, because like there's one point, there's one point in particularly in my child, in particularly in my childhood, which has governed for me personally, um, how I lived the rest of my life. And that was the moment I saw my dad have an affair with the 19-year-old governess. Like, I actually witnessed it with my own eyes. I was, mm. I was six at the time. And the one thing that I get now, apart from all of my other many structural personal failings, the, <laughs> the, the one thing I get now in particular that I cannot control is there are moments with some of my best mates when they start dating someone new. Um, I'm not romantically attracted to them. I'm, they're my mate, but when there's someone new in the picture, I lose control 
I've got it's oh, like you feel spiraling. threatened. What's that? Sorry. You feel threatened. Thre threatened uh, that I'm about to be left again. Oh. Um, abandoned that I that I that I know uh, because the, the thing that made that difficult at the time particularly was that Mum was still in hospital in Brisbane, 1,500 kilometres away, with, with my the newborn baby yeah, and, and my brother, and your burned brother, um, yeah. recovering from burns. And I didn't have the word to describe what I had seen, but I knew it was bad. Mm. And I had to wait weeks with this secret that I knew was earth shattering, but I didn't know how even to describe it. Mm -hmm. And it's all of those things wrapped up into one. Mm. And it's not a it's not a it's not in the mind for me. Like when I don't have any control over it, when this thing starts to happen, it just kind of wells up from within inside me. And it it is the most horrible feeling in the world that mm. I've that I've ever felt. Yeah. It's very much a physical response, yeah, like a yeah. bodily response. And and then you have to kind of draft the mind, like conscript the mind into service to be like, This is not real. You have a very great life. You know, all of these things. And it's it's not enough because the body is so powerful. I mean, the, mm. the signals in the nervous system controls mm. whether you get goosebumps or nervous mm. sweats or the kind of the tingling and all the rest of it. And the mind is just there in service um, half the time. Yes. <laughs> Which is really annoying. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I have all of this stuff to talk about, but I'm conscious that there may be people in the audience who would love to ask questions of these three amazing guests. So we have... Uh, 10 minutes um, for questions and are there mics mm. yes so if you have a question uh, can you raise your hand nice and proud and I will wave you over um, over here towards the front thank you thank you uh, thank you Rick for your story um, I feel one of the the one of the main characters or the main heroes in the book is your mum. Yeah. <laughs> and I just wondered if you could tell us, does she still keep um, her budget <laughs> and how <laughs> is she? <laughs> <laughs> I tell everyone I meet, everyone needs a Deb in their life. Hmm. Um, my mum my is, honest to God, just the best human being. I mean, we talk about resilience. Um, she is that. I mean, she never once buckled when we needed her and her life has not been great. Um, but she's the funniest, quirkiest character I've ever met, and she still is. Like, I mean, she goes to school, she's a teacher aide, and she goes to school during book week, dressed up as, I think she's done an elf three times now. Um, she had this hideous paper mache elephant head, um, which made her look like a very tiny, um, distressed elephant. Um, and she, uh, as, you know, part of ABBA and all the rest of it. Um, yes, she still does her sums. Um, during my book launch last year, I actually, so I rented a place in Redfern, for her and three of my teachers from primary school um, who she works with and they all flew down and we were there for a week and a half before the book launch and every morning I'd get up very late, <laughs> which is my <laughs> want, um, and she would have been up since six and she'd sitting there with her little notepad or I'd find the notepad left around the house and have a little sums on it because she'd be checking. And what I keep she'd like spent I felt, each Yeah, day. like what she had to spend. I'm like, yeah. I, I felt like just hitting her over the head going, um, I just got my tax return back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, please don't. Um, oh, but, she, but she, she, she was so in inspiring, amazing character. She's incredible. Mm. Um, and it's her 60th this year, and we're planning on taking her away for some somewhere. So oh, we've made her get a passport lovely. for the first time since she was 19. <laughs> wow, that's <laughs> great. No, no, no. no. I'm going to burn all notepads. <laughs> I'm on holidays too. So. <laughs> we have a question over here. This is actually addressed at all three authors. Um, there's no way in the world you could possibly write down every story, every anecdote, every experience that you've had. Are you all satisfied that you've told your story or are there more to come? 
Silka's journey is due out in October 2019. All I've got to do is finish writing the puppy. Oh, <laughs> so you're, you're telling Silka's story next? Yes, I am. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, uh, yes, there are plenty more stories in, uh, to come from me, and, and the next one will be a the sequel, they're calling it, to, to The Tattooist. Oh, wow, I and, didn't um, know and that. And the, the yeah. many, many offers that will fall flow from there. Personally, telling my own stories? No, you're not going <laughs> to know, right? <laughs> I'm the closed book. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, however, the channel I for other people's yeah, stories. Yeah, so I will now defer <laughs> to these <I> folks. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I published this when I was just turned 31, um, so I joke that I'll write my next book when I'm 62. Uh, <laughs> like when I've got the second half done. Um, <laughs> Jurassic Park, The Lost World, the sequel. Um, it's going to be great. No, I've, I've got other stuff that I want to do and other thoughts. That, um, that I want to write a book on love, um, to be quite honest, because I think that was the major failing in everything that ever happened in my family. Um, the inability to love, um, the inability for men to be affectionate um, and, and have emotions. Uh, uh, and that's my mum burst out laughing when I told her this. <laughs> she's like, oh she's, no! She's like, what do you know about love? I'm like, well, actually, there are many different kinds of love. Um, uh, I would know, love to see a book written by a man about love right? and familial right? love. And there are and different kinds of love. I mean, there, you know, love for your pets, which we've got in very strong abundance <laughs> in our family. So you know, there's more things to do, and I'm very excited to to get around to them. Great. What about you, Mira? Um, well, look, um, I've been writing a lot. I've been publishing a long time since I was 19. I think I had my first poem published. And um, yeah, this is my first literary book, apart from a poetry chapbook in the 90s. But I, I feel like I've been writing, you know, around this stuff a lot. No, it's not all that I write. It's not the only theme, but I think it has, I say it in the book, I think it has been somewhat of a grand theme <laughs> for me, one way or another, and I, I write across genres, so I work in poetry, fiction, um, non-fiction, hybrid, academic. Um, so, yeah, I, I have some plans for next, I have a work in progress, but, um, uh, yeah, I, I, I will definitely keep writing. But in terms of my story, uh, who knows? I don't know whether there will be more sort of memoir pieces. Um, for now, I'm interested in exploring some other, other genre terrain. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Um, okay. Do we have another question? Great, thank you. Uh, thank you. Thanks for coming to Newcastle. Um, Rick, this is a question for you, and I, I feel like I need to apologise before I ask it because... <laughs> Um, it's probably unfair. Um, <laughs> I'd sign me the hell up. <laughs> <laughs> um, given your experience, your personal insight into poverty, trauma, intergenerational trauma, yep. um, and you've just spoken about your next book wanting to be about love, but yet you write for a paper exactly where this <laughs> that <laughs> can be so mean-spirited no, and no, no, the editorials yeah. seem so incongruous, well, you seem so incongruous to some of the editorials we get in that publication. Yeah. How do you reconcile that? Mm. Well, no, I, I, look, I expected the question and because I get it all the time and I spend most of my, my daily life arguing with people on Twitter about why I am actually <laughs> at The Australian. Um, so um, you're about the 4,587. <laughs> <laughs> no, do you know what? And I think that's the point. I think... I. I'm there because it still pays for good journalism. Like, I write about three things, pretty much, and nothing else. I write about the National Disability Insurance Scheme, aged care, and welfare, um, more broadly. And I do one story a day. I come in, I tell them what I'm doing. I do it. And it's kind of based, and, and they publish it, and it's read by people who make decisions. <coughs> now, that's the simple answer. Um, 
the thing that makes it easiest for me to stay there, because there were days when I wanted to quit, um, particularly during the same-sex marriage debate, um, and the safe schools <coughs> coverage, which I was dead against, and which I was acting chief of staff in Sydney during. So I would have to go into conference and listen to these ideas get spitballed around about me. <laughs> and it was really fucking hard. But the reason I was, I'm still there at the moment is because, you know, in 2017, I wrote three front pages on the mental health gap in the NDIS. Um, unprompted, I had a good contact in <coughs> grassroots areas who's like, this is a big fucking deal. And I wrote these front pages on the third day, sorry, after the budget that year, there was $80 million as a stopgap measure. Greg Hunt tried to call me for seven days and I don't pick up my numbers. Um, when he finally got through, he's like, I, I'm not telling you this for any reason. He's like, but I thought you should know that the reason that money was in the budget was because of your front page stories in The Australian. Wow. He's like, I had been having conversations with Malcolm Turnbull and Scott Morrison and they didn't get the need for it. They're like, yes, it's important, but is it really that critical? He hadn't made the case. On the third day, Malcolm Turnbull sent him a WhatsApp message at 6.15am going, what do you need? Oh. That's one example. I mean, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> good. Um, last week, um, including one where I didn't even have to write the story, I had two cases overturned in the NDIS just by putting questions in. Um, one of them was a family that had um, uh, the NDIS wouldn't fund the $17,000 wheelchair for a man with MND, so the family bought it themselves and then he died within a year um, and the NDIS weren't going to refund it, the money. And so I wrote about that, and then that afternoon they're like, this has been a, well, sorry, before the story even came out, they came back to me and said it's been fixed. We paid the bill. And then later on that week, there was another man who'd won access through the Administrative Appeals Tribunal um, in 2016 for the scheme, and then he'd been sent a letter on March 5 this year saying, we've done a review, you're not in anymore. Just fully, fully not in. I put some questions in, and then that afternoon they said, there's been a massive error, um, we're speaking to him. And that's just like, what, like tiny little examples of things that I know I can still achieve. Um, sometimes you've got to be inside the tent. I'm not one of these people who believe that you, you, know, you can change the Catholic Church by being a good member of the congregation um, because that resides a bit further upstairs. But I think as long as you do still have some personal power to do good in the world, um, then you've got to weigh up. Like if I went somewhere, if I went to the ABC, I don't think I would have that same power immediately because it's a big organisation. If I went to The Guardian, I think I would be more visible. Um, but I'm not necessarily sure that I would have the same power. So it's something that's been weighing on my mind for a very long time. Mm, <laughs> great answer. <laughs> Good question, too. Um, that actually concludes our time. I'm afraid we don't have any more time for questions. But if you have a question that you wanted to ask uh, when you go to have your book signed, that's a great opportunity to chat to these authors. Please join me in thanking Rick Morton, Mira Atkinson, and Heather Morris. I hope you enjoyed listening to this conversation from the 2019 Newcastle Writers' Festival. Save the date for next year's festival, April 3 to 5, and follow us on Facebook for regular updates.